Kia This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Good morning, everyone. This is uh, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting on air. My name is Dan. I'm an alcoholic and your secretary for today's meeting. If you can all say hello, Dan, if you like. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. Hi, hi everyone. All right, let's, um, let's start this meeting as we always do with AA and with the Serenity Prayer. So if you could all join me. God, grant me serenity, serenity to accept the things I cannot, cannot change. Courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. All right. Now, uh, we normally start with the AA preamble, which I'll just um, bring up now. Um, I was meant to do this just before we started, and of course, I was too busy downstairs having um, a cup of lovely coffee with the the people that are now um, in the studio. So... Let me just bring up the AA preamble. And that's that's on aa.org.nz, which is the New Zealand website for AA. All right, now we've got... Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of people who share their experience, strength and hope with each other, that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organisation or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. And in the studio today, we have Bulls and Bears. Now, they started out as a live meeting, and they're now an online meeting on Monday nights at 7.30, and they, the, the Zoom address is on the AA website. So um, they're, they're easily accessible, um, not just in Wellington, but everywhere. So uh, so, so welcome um, to, the, to the meeting. Now, um, how do you normally start the meeting? Do you normally start with the... Um, with, with a reading, or um, how, it works. how it works. Oh, great. All right. Well, perhaps I might invite my friend James uh, to, to read how it works. How does that sound? James, good? Oh, great. Great. Yeah. Excellent. Let me just find it. It's uh, Chapter 5, I believe, how it works. All righty. Great stuff. Thank you, James. Uh, James, I'll call it. James, how it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are conditionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living with, which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. 
our stories to close in a general way that we used to be like, what happens and what we are like now. If you have decided that you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these we barked, we thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our commands, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go. Absolutely. Remember that we deal with alcohol. Cunning, baffling, powerful, without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power, that one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons who have harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. 10. Continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Uh, Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these (coughs) principles in all order all our affairs. Many of us exclaimed, What an order, I cannot go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one amongst us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We come claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of an alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our Personal adventures before and after have clear, free, uh, pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholics and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have a believed our, relieved our alcoholism. C, that God could and would if he were sought. Thanks very much, James. That was a, a reading from the Alcoholics Anonymous big book. Well, it's called Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was an excerpt from Chapter 5, How It Works. All right, now we'll carry on with this uh, live Bulls and Bears meeting. And it looks as though um, Helen's put her hand up to go first (laughs) to share. So, Helen, would you like to share? Thanks. Hi, I'm Helen and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Helen. Um, I am a grateful alcoholic because my life today is a life that I never thought I would have. Um, I grew up in an alcoholic family. I, but was never identified, no one ever thought they were alcoholics, they were just heavy drinkers. Um, 
heavy drinkers, and it was a middle, it looked like an average middle class family, you know, growing up, and um, and that was how it looked, and no one would have known the trauma that was going on within the household. Um, there was trauma, um, abuse happening, but we looked okay from the outside, so there was nothing talked about it, but there was a lot of drinking. There were parties every Friday, Saturday night. There was a small group of people that would always get together, all went to the same church, um, coming from an Irish Catholic environment, and um, they would always get together. And I think they each family would bring in a crate each. I don't know how much of the crate they got. They drank each night, but it was a crate on the, for the weekend at least. Um, so three crates, six adults. Um, being a young child, I was able to go around and sip all the beers. I I used to talk about being marinated in the womb because back then I don't think women really knew about not drinking while while um, pregnant, but um, I, I'm okay. I'm okay. So that's, that was a relief. I came out okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I sipped beers and that carried on. I got to school age in about 15, 16. There started to be events when I would, um, if something went wrong, if something, I remember going for an interview for Teachers College. You wouldn't have wanted me as a teacher anyway. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, I went for that and it didn't go well. So I had to go home and get changed before going back to school. So I had a few rums or a, and then went back to school intoxicated. And that sort of behaviour carried on through into my tertiary studies where I nearly got kicked out because of my drinking. I turned up to a law exam intoxicated, hence I didn't do very well. Um <laughs> I talked about not being available for schooling when, when I was young, and I wasn't really. There were too many other things going on in my life. But, you know, that set me up into a way of living where I learnt that any for any emotion, you drank. If it was a good day, you'd drink. If it was a bad day, you'd drink. And so I just drank. And Amy Hart had, and had a song, and it says, I drank so hard the bottle ached. And I just sort of relate to that, you know. It was I drank and I drank and I would squeeze every little bit out of the bottle. I can I also still to this day cannot understand anybody who can have a couple of sips of wine and leave it, leave the glass alone and even get up from the table and not drink it. I've got no understanding how someone could have a glass of wine and then put the rest of it in the fridge. Um, I've got no concept of those sorts of things. And so even though I'm sober, and I've been sober for some time now, I still know I'm an alcoholic because I know that if I start drinking, I do not have the ability to stop. If I don't start drinking, then I don't, then I don't have the craving. As soon as I pick up a drink, I will have that craving and there will be no stopping me until I'm passed out or until, you know, I don't know what. And um, and I would and in that time I would have made a real fool of myself and I would have been the la- I would have thought that I was the um, the fa- the you know main person at the party and I was being funny and witty and everyone else would be really bored with me. So that's so anyway going back to my story. So then what happened was I got into a course that I liked and I still drank. I can remember turning up at class one day and 
I was intoxicated. I had drunk all through the night, and I can remember sliding under my desk, under the my off my chair and under the desk in class. It was a very tolerant sort of place I was learning, um, and then going home, and then at lunchtime going having lunch with a friend, i.e. a liquid lunch, and then I was living in a hostel, and I was going home on Friday night to go to bed. And everybody else was just getting up to go out, you know, which was normal. So my life wasn't normal, although I thought it would, it was, and I thought I was quite successful. And so this continued on. I drank. I would drink at work. I would, um, yeah, I would have champagne breakfasts um, quite a lot. And they would be either with people or a special occasion. Um, if it was my birthday, and I just felt no one else is going to celebrate me. I'll celebrate me, you know, self-love, not. And so I would have a champagne breakfast. And I then had to go, this particular day, I had to go off to a meeting, which was a community meeting. And there were lots of formal people there um, from the public service, as well as a lot of community leaders. And I came in late. And I sat there and I listened to what was going on. And I thought, why isn't people... Why aren't people challenging all of this? So I got up and I started challenging, even though I'd come in late. And there was a person that I knew very well, and it became morning tea. They stopped soon afterwards for morning tea, and she came up to me and said, and of course, Helen, if you'd been there on time, you would have heard that they asked to do their presentation without interruptions, and then they were going to have questions. I had derailed that meeting, um, and that was through alcohol. So my life went on like that, and and it got back. It, and I had to. I also was trying to manage childhood trauma, and so I would drink to try and mask that. But actually, what we know about drinking is a depressant, and it makes things worse. And so I was in therapy for a long time, and and you know I get some places, but I really didn't. It didn't really change my life. And I just felt that if everybody was able to, you know, be kind to me and actually understood what I'd gone through, then the world would be okay. And that actually, you know, people needed to be nicer and kinder to me. Um, there was no reflection, no ability on my part that I might have had any role to do with any of the things that were going on in my life in the here and now. And so I did that and I went into this counsellor and after some time of getting to know me, she suggested that maybe I might have had a drinking problem, which totally wounded me, wounded me. And I cried that whole day. And I think I had to have a few days off work to recover from this statement. And so then we carried on a bit. And then I went to her and I, and so then we were doing some controlled drinking. And I think controlled, I thought this was going to be great, some controlled <laughs> drinking. It would mean that it would be three or four drinks it may have been a week, it may have been a day, it's so long ago. However, it became St. Patrick's Night and three or four drinks. And for some reason, I couldn't quite remember, was it three or four drinks at any one place? Was it three or four drinks at night? So I decided, after trying to ring at your counsellor on a Sunday night, which doesn't happen anyway, um, I decided to that it was three or four drinks at any one place I was at. And so that just meant that we went out and was celebrating. And once I'd had my three or four drinks, I was making everyone move on to another bar so I could start again. They couldn't understand what the hurry was, but it was me. And um, I went to the counsellor the, the next week and said, I've got no money. 
And her response to me at that point was, shall I ring AA? Now, any logical person would know that you don't usually ring AA if you've got money issues. You'd go to a budgeting officer. I was a bit doolally and I was a bit, I was, I just didn't know what was going on. And so I said, okay. <laughs> I said, okay. Didn't question this anymore. And I went and told my friends, oh, I'm going to go to an AA meeting. None of them actually said, no, Helen, don't. You don't need to. One, one's partner was in the NA and said, I will take you to, to an, to an OA, uh, to a, oh, what, what meeting am I in? AA <laughs> meeting, to an AA meeting. And then um, another one had a friend who used to go to AA, so set up a, um, so that I could talk to her. They also told me where to go so that I would hear, I would not think I'm not like those people. I went. I was totally bewildered why I went to this AA meeting. I didn't understand anything anyone was talking about. To tell you the truth, what was on my mind was, if I'm not drinking, then what am I going to do? And all I could actually think of is, well, I'll have to smoke cannabis. But that caused a dilemma for me because actually I don't like inhaling and I've never smoked and that. So I was sitting there trying to work out what was I going to do and how was I going to be such a dull and boring person? Um, I never, uh, cannabis is not an option. And um, as you, as I've just said, it wasn't an option for me anyway, because I don't like inhaling. So I did stop drinking that day. And I don't know why I stopped drinking. It must have been something greater than myself, something that I knew that I needed something different in my life. And I also believe that there's a higher power in my life. Whether you call your higher power God, good, orderly direction, whatever, there was something greater than myself that helped me. I um, went to that meeting. I went to the meeting because I liked the meeting. I liked the people there and thought they were quite interesting. I also, there's a bit that we read in the big book, which we'll read at the end, The Promises, and that held me I really liked the promises and wanted those things in my life and so I kept coming back and there's also another part of AA which is doing service at that point basically although it wasn't official I was unemployed I was actually unemployed I, I even to this day I sort of a bit blurred on whether I was unemployed or not I was unemployed and so I would and we used to take a cake because that would mean that if it was anybody's birthday we could celebrate AA birthday of sobriety, and sometimes I'd turn up at those meetings and say, I'm only here because I had to bring the bloody cake. But actually what that did was I kept on turning up and I kept on hearing how people's lives were changing, how their lives were better. And, you know, without the drink, they could think clearly, they could problem solve, they could, you know, start to live like other people. Like for me, because I, I drank all my money, I didn't pay my bills. And so when they used to come in envelopes, as they used to, I um, I didn't really know what to do with them. So I threw them away and um, threw them away. Someone would eventually help me when it got all a bit too chaotic. Um, and so I would throw, throw those away. And I can remember the first time I paid my registration uh, for my car on time. And that was so exciting. And that was because I had the money. And I can remember the first time I looked up at the sky and saw that it was blue and it was a beautiful day because all of those things had been a haze while I was drinking. It was just a struggle. I left my life in a fog, just sort of fighting my way through it, thinking I was having a fantastic life. 
So, yeah, so I've stayed in AA for a long time now, coming back one day at a time. Fellowship, having a sponsor um, and doing the steps are really important things. And, you know, the steps people may think are controlling. Some of them will think that they're boring and why do I need to do them? And that is a bit, you know, excessive. But the thing is, is actually by working the steps, what we call the 12 steps, it's a paradox. By surrendering, you get your freedom. And um, by surrendering to a higher power and doing these simple steps, my life today, I live with dignity and grace. I hold my head up high. I am. I can contribute to society. I am respected. And they're all the things that I desired and never thought that I would ever get. Um, and so they are the things that help me today. You know, there is nothing that a drink won't make worse. And there is, and I am an alcoholic of the, and at times my head still goes to, uh, especially if I've had a bad day at work and it can be challenging at times. And I think, God, I just want to have a drink. But actually, I know that, that my life would go downhill completely. And I know I can't take that first drink because if I have that first drink, then I won't stop. So for me, abstinence is the option. Controlled drinking does not work for an alcoholic like me. Um, if you're struggling with if you're struggling with controlled drinking, I would encourage you strongly to think about abstinence. You, then it doesn't have to be in your head. You don't have to try and work out how long you've been um, drinking for, and and you don't get into awful situations. You don't have fights with your partners. You don't. You think that you're the most interesting person in, in the, at the party, but actually, people get tired of hearing the same conversation over and over again. Actually, I really like being able to wake up in the morning and know what I've done the day before, and be able to start the day with a clean slate, not having to clean up the wreckage of the night before or anything else. So I'm hugely, hugely grateful for being a member of the fellowship and also belonging to Bulls and Bears group and for the people around me that support me, both within AA and those in my extended now. So thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you, Helen. All right, this is uh, Wellington Access Radio, 106.1 FM, and you're listening to Alcoholics Anonymous meeting on air. We've got Bulls and Bears group here, live in the studio, very exciting. Now, um, if you want to get in touch with AA, the best way to do that is on our website, aa.org.nz. Uh, there's lots of different ways to contact us. You can uh, free call 0800 229 6757 is the phone number. Uh, there's an email address as well, help at aa.org.nz. And from the website, you can actually find a meeting, whether it's a live meeting or an online meeting, anywhere in New Zealand. Um, and um, so it's just a few clicks away. Uh, so aa.org.nz has got lots of information about Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, and it's a good way to get in touch with us as a, as a first step. And if you're really looking to um, find out how to get to a meeting or how we can help you. All right, let's um, move on with the sharing now. So, uh, Brenda, would you like to share? Tēnā koutou katoa, nō tapanganui a tara hou, ko Brenda Toko Ingawa, ko Alcoholic Ahou. Thanks, Helen, for your sharing. Um, I, I, my story is 
a bit different. I came from a family that didn't drink. We didn't have alcohol in the house. And I remember being very jealous of my mates who got to drink the head of the beer off their parents' drink at home. You know, I thought, oh, gosh, I wonder what that tastes like, you know, that foamy drink. Um, and I think I might have snuck a bit, but didn't really like the taste. But um, I, you know, I grew up quite um, baffled by life, not understanding how it worked. I seem to, um, I think we talk about, there was a rule book of life and nobody gave it to me, so I didn't understand how it worked. And I remember being very baffled by life. And um, when I was 14, I had my very first drink, 13 or 14, and I suddenly understood a whole lot more than I'd ever understood before. I felt relaxed. I felt comfortable. I felt like life made sense after all. You know, it had a very special effect for me, alcohol, that I didn't appreciate other people didn't have the same magic effect that alcohol had. You know, I was 14 years old and I thought, oh, now I know what, what it's all about, you know, how to feel comfortable in your own skin, how to feel okay, how to feel safe, how to feel, I don't know, like you can talk to people, um, you know, the life makes sense. And I um, proceeded from that point on to drink as much as I could, as often as I could, um, which at that point consisted of every weekend, I would get drunk with my mates. I had two mates who loved to get drunk. We would drink. We would go down the um, bottle store and, and get somebody to get us alcohol, and we were drinking straight spirits at the time. We would get a bottle of vodka, a large bottle. It was guaranteed to get guaranteed to get two of us drunk and one sober enough to look after the others. And we were supposed to take turns, but I never took a turn looking after the others. I always drank more than my share. Um, and we got very drunk um, all around town in the bushes. And I remember, you know, um, there was a there was a vacant section up by our houses and, you know, we, we would go into the bush with this bottle of vodka or Bacardi, whichever we could get hold of, and we would drink. And I remember, you know, there'd be this racket in the bush, like a lot of rustling and carrying on, you know, sort of sitting in there drinking. And, and I always wonder what the neighbours would have thought, you know, the rustling in the bush and they didn't know how life-changing it was <laughs> occurring in there for me, you know. Life was making sense and I understood it and... Um, magic was happening and um, like I say I didn't know that that was an abnormal reaction to alcohol it was the only reaction I had I drank to blackout which is not drinking to unconsciousness it's drinking until you've killed enough brain cells that your body's functioning but your brain isn't and I did a lot of things in blackout that I don't recall some funny some dangerous and some not so funny you know um but um I didn't know any other way to drink and nobody had told me that there was anything different and um, I drank like that from 14 to 18. Um, I met my first boyfriend uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning on Lampton Quay. I was walking down there with a flag and a beer in those days, some glasses and a carving knife in my bag. I was on my way to Palmerston North. I recalled to see my nana. I suddenly had an inspiration at 2am to go see her. Um, I was walking down Lampton Quay and these two guys were trying to push in A30 car down Lampton Quay and they said can you drive and I said yes of course I can I didn't have a license I didn't know how to drive but when I'm drunk I can do anything so I promptly parked their car on the footpath um, they offered me a lift home I thought that's a good idea I pulled a carving knife on them and said be careful I'm armed in the back of their car uh, arrived at my house and decided I like one of them like enough he could take me home instead so <laughs> and so began a two-year relationship which was chaotic um in its duration as it was in its beginning. And, um, you know, there's quite a lot of violence because when I get drunk, 
I also think I can fight people, um, usually mean, bigger than me. Um, you know, I think I can do a lot of things. But, you know, the drinking kind of turned at around 15, 16, where it wasn't as much fun, but it was becoming um, a bit of a problem. Um, yeah, and uh, that relationship broke up, and um, and I and I met another guy, a guy I really liked, he's a nice guy, and um, and I and I thought I won't. I was eighteen. In fact, I was eighteen, and um, during that period, um, the relationship was so bad. You know, there were periods where I was away from it. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous reached out to me when I was 18. I didn't call for it. Came and saw me, met you know, a couple of men. One was 70 years old and one was 40 years old. One was 20 years sober. Joe and the other Bill was about 18 months sober. And they came to me and they did what it talks about in our big book. They told me the true nature of my malady, that I wasn't mad or bad or, um, you know, suffering from depression or any other kind of psychiatric illness. I actually was an alcoholic and I could not drink safely. And that the only solution for me was a spiritual solution, and that touched a call for me. And they took, I went to AA from that meeting with those guys, um, and you know I remember walking into a meeting at eighteen and thinking, "Yep, this is this is actually what I've been looking for all my life." And um, but it didn't stay. I met another guy, and and um, and I drank again after being with him for a wee while. But what happened for me was within a space of 18 months, two years of being with him, I was in the same state I was again. I had been with the previous one. I was, you know, doing things that I didn't mean to be doing, you know. For some reason, when I get drunk, I forget who my boyfriend is. I forget who your boyfriend is, you know. I get a bit mixed up and, you know, go with the wrong one. Um, That kind of stuff, you know. And people get mad with me. And I couldn't comprehend it because, of course, Quite often I had no memory of what had gone on, um, except from a sly smile and a, you know. Anyway, um, so I ended up, um, I remember I, we were lived on the Coromandel and we were living in a van and uh, this guy said to me, I came to, I'd been disappeared for a week because um, we had this rule, I'd go down to the local pub and the bell went at 10 o'clock in those days um, if he wasn't outside to pick me up, I'd go elsewhere. Somebody else would make him another offer, you know. And uh, I didn't tell him about that rule, of course. I forgot to tell him. Um, so he was never there at 10 o'clock. So at one point I disappeared for about a week and I didn't know where I'd been and he didn't know where I'd been. And um, I have vague recollections but because I was in and out of blackout most of the week. You know, and I remember the look on despair on his face and he said to me, can you not control your drinking? And I just had a moment of clarity and I said to him, no, I can't. I absolutely can't. I have no... I can't do this anymore, you know. And um, and I said, I need to go to AA, I need to go back. And um, we left the Coromandel and went straight to um, Hamilton, where I'd met these guys before, and I went to an AA meeting. And um, I kind of thought in the back of my mind, while I was deflated in depth at one point, I still thought, oh, six months in, he'll forget, I'll be able to drink again. But what I found in Alcoholics Anonymous was um, that that thing that I've been seeking through the alcohol, that that emptiness inside, trying to get it filled. Um, you know, I found that it got filled through um, the spiritual program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a spiritual program, which is, which is what I was looking for as a spiritual solution, which is what I need. 
Um, I love the bit in the big book. It says our adventures before and after. Um, because for me, you know, the adventures weren't so much before coming in here, but afterwards, and my adventure and living began. I arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was 20 years old. I thought I was all growing up, and I thought, you know, this will be easy. And um, what I found was, um, you know, I had to relearn a whole lot of stuff to be able to function normally um, without alcohol, that I hadn't grown up at all, um, that I was just as baffled at 20 as I had been at 14 by life, which had made me turn to the bottle. And, um, yeah, you know, I do, <clears throat> you know, I do the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous um, to change my life so that I don't, so drinking isn't an option for me because if I'm left to my own devices, you know, the only thing I can think of is to drink, to, you know, to stop the, for ob, 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 no, I can't pronounce the word. Ob, Obsession? No. no, going you know, into blackout. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, to get rid of the reality um, of life. Um, you know, everything, I don't have, I don't get my old life back in Alcoholics Anonymous. I get an absolutely new life. You know, I am um, transformed by this program. And um, as some members say, you know, I've become the person that I was meant to be. Um, before becoming an alcoholic. Um, I used to, when I was drunk, you know, I always wanted to be better, always wanted to be better than I was. And I was always striving for that. And I remember, you know, I used to read those self-help books in the 70s, um, probably 80s, no, 70s it was. Yeah. You know, I'm okay, you're okay, because I didn't feel okay. And um, and, I, and I remember I got so drunk I couldn't read past the first paragraph. <laughs> I'd reread the same paragraph time and time again, thinking I don't understand why this isn't making me feel okay. And um, and the other thing, I was so shy. Was, uh, the book was I used to read was um, it, you know what do you say after you say hello? Because I wouldn't know. I'd say hello and then freeze, you know. <laughs> and um, you know, and today you can't shut me up, which is great. I um, you know I have a rich and varied life in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, just because I chose um, to put down the drink. Although I don't believe it's really a choice. You know, when I went to that first meeting. Um, when I was 18, I remember still this woman coming to me and she was 70 years old and really old and 20 years sobriety. And she said to me, you need never drink again. And I knew that I was in the right place because people didn't understand I needed to drink. I didn't choose to drink or want to drink. I didn't wake up going, oh, you know, I feel like I'll have a, you know, cocktail this afternoon. I actually needed a drink to feel normal to function. And, um... And only those in Alcoholics Anonymous understood that terrible need to drink. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to get rid of that. You know, I would wake up thinking about drinking. I had a little motto in life that said, I think, therefore I drink. You know, I just thought about it, you know. And they say, why did you get drunk? I said, well, I think about it. I think, so I drank. Um, yeah. You know, and the other thing I always makes me laugh, and um, people would say to me, I mean, I got kicked out of school because of my drinking. And... Uh, um, so I'm going a bit over time. Because uh, um, I thought it was funny to get drunk at school. It made life school a lot more interesting. But I remember somebody saying to me once, you're drunk. And I said, nah, I'm not drunk. <laughs> <laughs> you want to see drunk? Give me another hour or so. And I was really drunk, you know. And then they didn't like it, you know. Because um, to me, my drinking is not normal. You know, it's not a few drinks and being friendly and witty and articulate. It's blackout, you know fumbling around, um, causing chaos wherever I go. 
and, uh, and I don't live like that anymore, and I'm really grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous. So, thanks. Thanks, Brenda. All right, this is uh, Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM. This is Alcoholics Anonymous meeting on air, and we've got bulls and bears uh, live in the studio. So, um, yep, we'll, we'll, um, we'll move on to the next um, person to share. So, Beryl, would you like to share, please? Thank you. I'm Beryl, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Beryl. I, I've enjoyed the sharing, and it's taken me back. Taken me back. Oh, okay. I'm moving forward, <laughs> both in life and towards the microphone. <laughs> so um, I, I like being reminded that, you know, I also grew up in an alcoholic home, and I grew up in an alcoholic home when 6 o'clock closing was the um, what happened. And I was going to say I grew up in a dysfunctional family, but my family functioned in a dysfunctional way. My mother wasn't an alcoholic. My father was an alcoholic. And, in fact, the whole town was full of alcoholics, you know, because to drink, to get in as much drinking as you can by 6 o'clock and then come home was the, was the norm in, um, yeah, in my growing up time. You know, I'm from a family of six kids and I am the only alcoholic out of those six kids. My brother is a workaholic and the rest, well, they just functioned differently. And But my, it, I find this really interesting because my father's side, his father was an alcoholic and died drinking methylated spirits. So it, you know, it's progressive. It comes down and it's just the luck of the draw who gets it, I suppose. But my drinking was um, um, what's it? What's the word when you you know not constantly, but binge. I was a binge. Thank you. <laughs> I was a binge drinker. Some of the brain cells have gone, you see. And but my binge drinking got closer and closer to you know closer, and then it became a daily a daily uh, reprieve. Really, that's what it was. And I was six, I think I was 15 or 16 when I started drinking. And then um, at 18, I went overseas. And that's my drinking took off because I was free to do whatever I liked. And I caused absolute chaos. You know, I was born in England and I went back to stay with my sisters. And I just caused absolute havoc. And this is in the 60s where, you know, Phone calls and everything like that were really expensive. And my sister rang my father and said, you need to get this girl, because I was only a girl, home. And um, anyway, they rang and they said that uh, they said that my mother was really sick and that I had to come home. My mother wasn't sick. And I get home and I'm absolutely lost after a year being away doing whatever I liked, hitchhiking all around Europe, doing all sorts of stuff. And I was completely and utterly lost. And the only thing that seemed to help me was alcohol. And, you know, only being back and within a year I had taken a prisoner and I was married and I was on my way back to um, Europe. And from then on, really, my drinking just escalated. And 
you know, the poor man that I was married to, he would say to me, can you, can you not plan anything? Because no, I never planned a thing. You know, it was always the spur of the moment and whatever was in my head was what was done. And that continued for quite a few years. <clears throat> and, you know, I don't have to go into all that because I did cause chaos. I caused chaos in my <clears throat> in my married life. I caused chaos with my friends. And But I thought I was enjoying myself. You know, that was a, that was a really sad thing until I woke up the next morning and was told either what I had done or remembered what I had done. And that wasn't that wasn't such fun. I was introduced. We went to live overseas again, and I was introduced to um, AA living in uh, an Asian country. And I went to this meeting, and there were a whole lot of different um, <clears throat> people with disabilities. I suppose you'd say, you know, there were Alanons, there were AAs, there were addicts, there were overeaters, but the one that I focused on was an emotional. And I thought, what a load of rubbish. What the hell is an emotional? And I um, and I continued drinking and we came back and that it took six years from that first meeting to come into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I came into Alcoholics Anonymous through Hamna, Hamner, Hamner, down in um, out of Christchurch. It was a, a treatment centre, and at Hamna I was introduced to what alcoholics were and what caused alcoholism and the feelings that go with <coughs> for alcoholics. And I was introduced to the 12 steps, and it was, it was interesting because the reason I went to Hamna wasn't, it wasn't to get sober, it was to actually have a holiday, get a suntan, lose weight. But, you know, that was my turnaround, being introduced introduced to AA. So then I got on, came back, and I got all the things that you're told to do. You know, I got a sponsor. I went through the steps. I sponsor other people. I go to meetings. I am involved in AA. And 34 years later, I'm still here. So, you know, if... Um, if you think your drinking is causing you problems, then I would suggest also that you go online and find a meeting or ring AA. Um, anyway, so I'm really glad I'm here and thank you very much. Awesome, Thanks. Beryl. Thank you very much. Uh, this is Wellington Access Radio 106.3 FM and this has been uh, the Bulls and Bears online meeting but this time live in the studio so it's been awesome to have you here now they normally uh, finish their meeting with uh, reading the promises so I'm going to do that now this is a, a section of the AA big book and it's from a chapter into action on page 83 if we are painstaking about this phase of our development we will be amazed before we are halfway through we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness we will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. 
Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realise that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialise if we work for them. Excellent. All right, well, um, just before we go, I'll just reiterate the um, the way we can uh, be in contact with AA, and that's aa.org.nz is the website. There's a free phone number anywhere in New Zealand, 0800 229 6757, and an email address, and that's help at aa.org.nz. Also, if you want to listen to more of these... <laughs> Then uh, we're, we're on lots of different platforms. I found us on Spotify the other day, so that's quite exciting. You can listen to these um, th- these radio shows uh, on on Spotify, so it's pretty fantastic. All right, well let's um, let's all join together and close the meeting with the Serenity Prayer. So I invite all of you to join us. God, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. That program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks, New Zealand On Air, for funding accessmedia.nz.